0: VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com/slash metaverse impact. <laughs> Episode
2: 395, Jefferson Market and the Women's House of Detention. Hey, it's the
1: Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm
2: Tom Myers. And today, well, Greg, we're not alone, are we?
1: Oh, no. As a matter of fact, uh, we're sitting on a stage in front of a lovely crowd of New York history lovers on the Lower East Side.
2: Wow! Wow! Wow, that is not a sound effect, Greg.
1: That's really happening. (laughs) I did not hit a button. Yes. Wow. That's real.
2: Hello, everybody. We are so happy to be recording today's show live at Caveat, the performance space on Clinton Street, back in our old stomping ground, the Lower East Side. And we're not alone behind the mics today because we will soon be joined by author and historian Hugh Ryan to discuss his latest book, The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten
1: Prison. (laughs) So you all have that to look forward to later in the show. And uh, we just need to say, I just it's so nice to be back in front of people, in front of listeners, people who are sitting at tables having cocktails. And, you know, we hope that this is something that will get, you know, back on the road to doing more often in the future.
2: Yes, we do. And uh, check out our website for announcements of more live events around New York City, including
1: Halloween. So today we're talking about a historic place in Greenwich Village, uh, Jefferson Market, and the many places which took the name Jefferson Market and... Finally, the Women's House of Detention, the notorious detention center, which stood here for over 40 years. Now, when you say Jefferson Market to most New Yorkers today, they usually don't think of a market or a prison at all. Most likely, if they know the name at all, um, it's because of the Jefferson Market Library which is a branch of the New York Public Library that opened in 1967.
2: And it is a beaut. Any Jefferson Market Library fans out there? Yes, yes. It is one of my favorite branch libraries in the city. And what makes it so lovely is the beautiful historic building that it occupies was constructed in the 1870s as the Jefferson Market Courthouse. And it remained in use as a courthouse until the 1940s. But as the name implies, there was once an actual market here uh-huh. as well, and and that's where our
1: story begins. And that original Jefferson Market dates back to the 1830s. But Greenwich Village, of course, you know, where we're situating the story is far older. So Tom, can you situate the village a little bit, just so we can get our bearings here.
2: Yes, of course. During the Dutch and English periods, most of today's village had been farmland and and fine estates. And that name Greenwich first popped up in city records in the 1710s. But throughout the 18th century, farms in the area would be developed into lovely country estates for wealthy families like the Warrens and the Lisbonards and the Bayards. Which are
1: all familiar names if you're, I guess, a Bowery Boys listener. <laughs> um, and of course, the city's biggest landlord of the day, also had a little piece of the village, and that, that was Trinity Church.
2: Yes, they owned land from Tribeca, which is, of course, south of the village today, all the way up here, and they would develop that land in the late 1700s in, and early 1800s into streets, named after their vestrymen, like Van Damme and Leroy and Charlton. And as, you know, for those fine estates up here, those would start to get kind of whittled away into streets
1: as well. So, I mean, how could New Yorkers even get to the village, right? We don't have, like, a huge network of roads. So how did they even get here?
2: Well, if you look, say, at an old map from 1778, you can see that they could go up Greenwich Street, um, which ran alongside the river pre-landfill days or take a new road that was laid out in the 1760s called Greenwich
1: Avenue, or Greenwich Lane. So all of those streets actually predate the Commissioner's Plan of 1811, um, which would impose, of course, that whole street grid onto much of Manhattan north of Houston Street.
2: Yes, it would, And, and it wiped away many existing streets elsewhere. But those feisty residents of Greenwich Village didn't want any grid messing up their streets, because by the you know by the 18 teens and 1820s, many of their streets already had rows of small family homes on them. So, you know, back off commissioners.
1: <laughs> so, more or less, when the city laid out all the other streets and avenues, they basically left the village alone. So if you've ever gotten lost in the West Village, these are the people you can blame. <laughs>
2: We're looking at you, intersection of West 4th and West 10th. Uh, But by the early 1800s, development picked up in other ways, too. In 1797, New York State built their first penitentiary, Newgate, along the riverfront at West 10th. And it could accommodate about 400 inmates, and it had a separate wing for women.
1: Uh, And Newgate would be in use until it closed in 1829, when it was sold off... And the prisoners would be sent to a new penitentiary located 30 miles north. we know where that is? Sing Sing. Now, one of the reasons for this move was that, you know, by this time, Greenwich Village was really growing into a very busy place.
2: Yes. uh, Between the several yellow fever epidemics that sent New Yorkers north to the fresh air of the village and the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825 that brought a boom to the city's economy... New Yorkers were steadily moving up the island,
1: and that included here. And in 1825, Greenwich Village was officially incorporated into New York City proper, and then made up what was called then the Ninth Ward. Right, and
2: many village landmarks uh, date back to this period that are still standing today. Um, Churches were built like St. Luke's Chapel on Hudson in 1821, St.
1: Joseph's Church on Sixth Avenue in 1833, And of course, the new Washington Military Parade Ground, which was developed on that old potter's field in the 1820s. Of course, that would be Washington Square Park later.
2: So you get the picture. Uh, Greenwich Village was quite busy by the 1830s. There were about 25,000 people living in the neighborhood in the Ninth Ward at the time. And their only market was a couple of stalls down on Christopher Street at the river. Gansevoort Market wouldn't open up until the 1880s. So villagers wanted something you know, larger and more central for shopping and suggested building a market at the intersection of 6th Avenue and Greenwich Avenue. Well, so in 1832, the city bought up the 12 lots on that land for $32,000 and constructed a two-story brick market house that they named after Thomas Jefferson. It was a market house that lined Greenwich Avenue with an entrance on 6th Avenue. Basically, where the garden stands today was the market house. And this market opened in January 1833.
1: And that, you said... Greenwich Avenue and 6th Avenue. So that, right. that's a funny little block being the West Village. You know, it's, it looks a little bit like a, like a pie piece from you know, Trivial Pursuit, right? It has that <laughs> kind of shape. A very large pie piece from <laughs> Trivial Pursuit, yes.
2: And you know I love my old maps. Mm-hmm. And I spent a really fun afternoon um, at the New York Historical Society's Research Library last week flipping through the old fire insurance maps. <laughs> what a laugh line uh, they're, so, they're, they're so helpful You know in actually understanding How all of these buildings were laid out um, So this block Is bordered on the west by Greenwich Avenue The north by West 10th Street Also called Amos Street At the time and on the east by 6th Avenue And, and there's a tiny little bit Of Christopher Street that cuts off the southern Tip of the pie forming another <laughs> Small triangle
1: Yes a little little tiny pie, tinier pie. <laughs> um, so what foods were sold at the market?
2: Here? Well, at first it was just a, a meat market, just eight butcher stalls. But a couple years later, in 1836, the city built a second market, a country market, just next to the meat market. And this was a place where, according to the 1862 book, The Market Book by Thomas DeVoe, quote, producers of the soil can be accommodated, fishermen, poulterers, and hucksters,
1: I wanna s- I've never said that word before. Poulterers? <laughs> Poulterers? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then hucksters? What is that all about?
2: I think hucksters um, is a rather antiquated term for
1: peddlers. Oh, so that meaning would change later. Wow.
2: And peddlers is an antiquated term yeah. as
3: well. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, yes. Uh, so by the mid-1830s, the block had two market halls called the Jefferson Market, but they only o- occupied about a third of that block.
2: Right, yeah, that same decade in 1838, the Jefferson Market Watch House, a nighttime police force, opened up just next to the market along Greenwich Avenue. And by the 1840s, this would become the headquarters of the city's second police district, which included a police station, courts, a holding pen for those awaiting trial, and a jail for convicts who were awaiting sentencing. And here, for several decades then, men and women were held in the same facility, in conditions that became increasingly run down.
1: You know, but when I look at photos of this original complex, and we'll publish some on the website, um, I think what obviously stands out here is there is this fire tower in the middle of the block, and it looks like a lighthouse. Yeah, it does.
2: Um, it was a fire lookout tower. and From way up there, they could actually spot fires and ring out warnings to residents and, and you know call out to firemen. The original tower, which was built of wood, um, housed a 9,000-pound fire bell, and it stood near West 10th and 6th Avenue, uh, but it was destroyed by fire in the summer of 1851. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you'd think that they were on the lookout for it, but... They didn't get there in time, yes. A second tower, however, was then built in the middle of the block, um, adjoining those markets, and, and also th- a building that has two fire departments. So the firemen could then climb out of their window onto a ladder and go directly
1: up and look to see what was on fire. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, that is a lot happening on this one little block here, okay? Um, but things at this market and this police complex would change, of course, over the decades. You know, None of these structures, like, none of this is there today.
2: No. By the 1860s, um, all of these buildings were showing their age. And Thomas DeVoe, in the market book, wrote already in 1862 that the Jefferson market was, quote, much out of repair and needed to be replaced immediately. <laughs>
1: And I assume the rest of it probably needed replaced too the police station and the courts and the prison fire tower, obviously.
2: Yeah, they were all falling apart. And this had been, you know, after much discussion by politicians um, and graft and corruption by the likes of Boss Tweed and his cronies, the whole complex was finally demolished in the early 1870s. And plans were drawn up for a new market and courthouse and prison complex on the same block. Now, this new market was on the same spot, lining Greenwich uh, with the the seven-story prison next to it on Greenwich, although the courthouse had moved to 6th Avenue and West 10th Street. The city hired then architects Frederick Clark Withers and Calvert Fox of Central Park fame to design a new courthouse and prison, which they did in a lovely red brick brick and limestone uh, Victorian Gothic style. The courthouse boasted, you know, several stained glass windows and dramatic archways and a prominent bell tower. And it would quickly be recognized for its beauty. In fact, a poll of architects in 1885 voted it, quote, one of the 10
1: most beautiful buildings in America. I mean, I didn't realize they had beauty pageants for buildings back in the day. (laughs) The standards of beauty in this country, really intimidating if you're just an average looking courthouse looking (laughs) over there. Well, I ain't gonna do. Um, uh, well, anyway, was you done? This, <laughs> Was this market <laughs> was it an improvement? Was all this an improvement?
2: Uh yeah, it was actually the two-story market hall um, w- that was designed by Douglas Smythe was finished in brick and limestone as well with Gothic flair to kind of match the courthouse, with arched windows and doors and skylights stretched overhead. It was beautiful, and it would remain in
1: use through the 1920s. All right, so you got this. New courthouse, designed by Calvert Vox, the Calvert Vox, um, and that building is still standing there today with this outstanding clock tower, opened in 1876. Well, let us place this in a little context, as there just happened to be another construction project rising on 6th Avenue, right out in front of it, the 6th Avenue Elevated Railroad, which opened just two years later in 1878. And that
2: train would rattle through here all the way into the late 1930s, which is pretty important context here as we're talking about a courthouse. It wasn't exactly, you know, the most peaceful place to conduct legal proceedings.
1: <laughs> yeah, needless to say, we had an extremely loud and busy plot of land here by the 1870s, the market, a courthouse and a jail. But what was the new courthouse like in the late 19th century? Well, it was a very unconventional-looking place for everyday legal operations, if you think about it. Um, when you walked in from the 6th Avenue entrance, you turned left to go to a police court. Then to the right, and if you go to the library, you you'll you know this image, you go to the right, there's a circular staircase, almost medieval, um, which then led you up to a civil courtroom. And then, in addition, there were several offices of, uh, for judges and clerks, which could then be found on the second and third floors. Up up the spiral staircase. Up that spiral. It was like Law and Order meets Game of Thrones, right? <laughs> it's like Cersei Lannister with her glass of wine going to court, right? Um, but, yeah, but that's not all. It also had a very unique courtyard. Uh, to quote from an 1878 magazine article, quote, Between the buildings occupied by the court and the prison is an enclosed yard with an entrance into the ladder so that prisoners may be conveyed to and fro without publicity. Within the prison, accommodation in separate cells is provided on the second floor for 29 female prisoners and on the floor above and entirely separated for 58 male prisoners. And to be clear, this was the configuration
2: in the late 19th century. There were both male and female inmates.
1: Yes. And this was, you know, this was kind of different. Uh, in fact, a quote from our guest, Hugh Ryan, to quote from his book, Women's House of Detention, the new Jefferson Market prison did provide the necessary space to begin segregating different kinds of imprisoned people, male and female, young from old, etc. And Greenwich Village was considered centrally located, making it an ideal location for new experiments in penology meant to serve New York as a whole.
2: Of course, those experiments weren't necessarily improvements to the system.
1: No, it, they would actually act, they would actually get worse. Uh, and another reason this became such a bustling courthouse, by the way, and it's and as a result an overcrowded jail is because it started serving the Tenderloin District of New York, a district famous for vice that stretched from 23rd to 42nd Street on the west side, okay? So as you can imagine... It was immediately hampered by corruption as was pretty much anything regarding the police and legal in the late 19th century. In 1894, the Evening World ran an article with the headline, Delay and Neglect the Chief Evils of the Third District Court. Quote, there are nearly 500 cases now pending in this court, and many of them have been adjourned from time to time to suit the convenience of the court officers. Um, These twin evils, neglect and decay, are alone responsible for this serious condition of affairs.
2: Neglect and decay. So reading between the lines here, it sounds like a person could then be taken in from minor crime or even falsely accused and then
1: pretty easily get lost in the system. They absolutely could. In fact, this is a refrain that's going to stay with us here pretty much for the rest of the show here. Now, for those longtime listeners out there, the next section that we'll be going over will sound a little bit like a greatest hits of past Barry Boys episodes because a lot of stories that we've told on our show over the past 15 years passed through the doors of the Jefferson Market Courthouse. Perhaps the most publicized moment in the history of the courthouse occurred on June 26, 1906. Okay, the prior evening at Madison Square Garden, the famed architect Stanford White was enjoying a performance of the show *Mamselle Champagne upon the rooftop of the garden when he was approached by a man named Harry Thaw. Now Thaw was married to Evelyn Nesbitt, a young model who had been taken advantage of by, wa- by White several years earlier.
2: Yeah it's a sordid tale and we recounted um, the whole story in a past episode but Thaw's hatred for White reached a level of
1: obsession. And so just before midnight Thaw approached White at Madison Square Garden and shot him three times killing him instantly Thaw was then taken into custody spent the night at the tombs prison and then the following day was taken to Jefferson Market Courthouse. So in other words, as news broke that morning that, w- that White had been murdered, all eyes were on the courthouse. Quoting from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, at the police court, the patrol wagon had to force its way through a big crowd to reach the 10th Street or jail entrance of the building. Photographers were there by the score, and the crowd grew to such dimensions that Sergeant Casey of the court squad had to call for reserves, unquote. So it was here that Thaw was arraigned for the murder of White and then taken back to the tombs.
2: And since news had spread by then, I mean, I'm assuming that this was in the morning. Yes. Um, and so it must have been kind of like
1: breaking news in the morning papers. Yes, I mean, everyone was talking about it then, But starting the very next year, in 1907, the courthouse would be better known for its night court proceedings. In fact, the first in the United States. Uh, In fact, one for men, and then eventually in 1910, and more notably for the story that we're telling today, a specific court for women. And at the time, a majority of these women were being picked up on charges of prostitution. And had they all been arrested in the Tenderloin area? Uh, No, by this time, actually, the night court would would serve most of Manhattan. So they were all taken here. Now, before this, normally a woman charged with the crime would have to spend a night in a precinct police cell if she couldn't immediately pay her bail, a system which horribly victimized disadvantaged women who had to rely on predatory bail bondsmen in order to go free the new night court system brought accused women to the village where theoretically there was more room for holding okay and did bringing them here actually improve the situation at all no. No, it actually, it actually makes it much worse because, first of all, you know, it soon became overburdened with arrested individuals, and the jail was soon considered too small to handle the large number of people that were filtering through this court. But even worse... Uh, the night court cases became a public spectacle. Okay, they were open to the public, meaning that women could be publicly humiliated and shamed, and then those exploitative bail bondsmen that they were trying to get away from, well, they simply crawled in to the public gallery now. So they didn't really make anything better. Well,
2: and according to many historians, the public shaming was in fact intentional. Right? They were they were trying to teach the public a lesson.
1: So, I mean, this is bad news, you know, in absolute most cases. But on occasion, it could be used for good. Uh, For instance, do any of you remember uh, we did a show on the shirtwaist strike of 1909?
2: Yes, the thousands of women and girls who walked off their job in the garment industry. Um, Thousands of them went on strike and, and many were arrested. So I imagine then that some of them wound up
1: here in the night court. Yeah, so strikers could be sent in on charges of vagrancy, disorderly conduct, and even assault. One December in 1909, however, the wealthy Alva Belmont, a.k.a. the former Alva Vanderbilt, strolled into the Night Court Gallery in her finest furs. Okay. She was actually supportive of the strikers, um, she was involved at this point, and she peered at the proceedings through opera glasses. Then she proceeded to pay the bail for four women. To quote from the New York Times, Mrs. Belmont offered her house at 77 Madison Avenue as security, and the magistrate asked for the deed.
2: Alva's mansion as collateral. It was a special (laughs) night in the night court. Um, But seriously, isn't there something wrong about turning night court into this kind of public spectacle?
1: Well, lest we wag our fingers today, I should let you know, and maybe some of you know, and maybe some of you work there. The night court at the Manhattan Criminal Court is actually still open to the public, um, which I've seen variously described as either New York's weirdest tourist attraction, um, or unfortunate poverty tourism. Yeah, maybe TV's night court made it all seem too much fun. No, you yeah, know. yeah. This is in reality, this is not an '80s sitcom, right? Um, but anyway, if I had dated joke, dated <laughs> <a> joke, <laughs> that'll be cut. But anyway, if I had to go back in time, there there is one moment at Jefferson Market Courthouse that I think I would have liked to have sat through. Just one though. Do tell. Well on February 9th, nineteen twenty-seven, police raided the Broadway show called Sex, written and starring Ms. May West. <laughs> <laughs> the entire cast was arrested and <laughs> May West was sent to the Jefferson Market Night Court where the magistrate set her bail at $1,000 or around $16,000 today, okay? But it was, you know, late night, you know, it was after midnight. and There was no Venmo back then and there weren't even any ATMs back then. <laughs> so, you know, Wes couldn't – she couldn't obviously make her bail, so she ended up spending one night at the Jefferson Market Jail. Later, after she was officially charged with obscenity, she would be later sentenced to a workhouse – on welfare island for a week, but as a famous
2: person, of course, um, she was an exception as somebody who you know did actually have easy access to lots of money. Uh, once the banks were open in the
1: morning, most people don't have that luxury. No, there, uh, you know, there was this really unfortunate pipeline of women arraigned at the courthouse, held in the jail, and then sent to the welfare island workhouse, okay? And by the 1920s, there were even more women being brought into the courts on an ever-escalating number of crimes. This was not a viable system. And for at least 20 years, New York's Prison Association had advocated for a massive upgrade, a new house of detention, Uh, To be built on the spot of the Jefferson Market and the jail, an expanded confinement that would eventually hold both short and long-term inmates. So Mayor Jimmy Walker attended the groundbreaking on October 30th, 1929, a couple days after the crash of the stock market so that's not exactly a hopeful sign that's not really like you know like it's not good luck charm um, but the new women's house of detention would open in 1931 but of course this soon-to-be notorious house
2: of detention wasn't necessarily an improvement at all sit tight because we'll speak with author Hugh Ryan who will introduce us to the women's house of D right after this Today's show is brought to you by the podcast, For the Ages. The New York Historical Society produces a must-listen-to podcast exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversations on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped the American story. Historian Ted Widmer will tell you about the two 13th Amendments, one for slavery and one against, that still exist. Did you know the Nazis copied the US in the 1930s because they thought we'd perfected the caste system? Isabel Wilkerson compares the US, India, and Germany and discusses all the missed opportunities due to the U.S. dehumanization process of slavery over 246 years and 12 generations. Presidential historian Michael Beschloss examines declarations of war and why presidents turned to resolutions instead after 1942. Did you know that nine years of war in Vietnam was caused by a congressional resolution based on an incident that LBJ knew never happened? For the ages... Slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams.
1: Live at Caveat on the Lower East Side. Now to quote from the New York Times, March 8th, 1931. New York has a new architectural site in the building, now almost completed, which is known as the Women's House of Detention. The structure replaces the old Jefferson Market prison and is, and is on the same site at Greenwich Avenue and 10th Street. To the man on the streets, the institution will be the women's jail, as before. But its official name seems more in keeping with the edifice, not unlike a better-class apartment house. (laughs) Taxpayers who feared that the new jail would have a depressing influence on land prices in the neighborhood welcomed it as an asset once it was built.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Well, it's at this point, I think, that we could all benefit by disengaging from the official reports of the House of Detention in the press and gain some real insights into how the place operated and reflected the history that would soon be happening in the streets around it.
1: Hugh Ryan is a writer, historian, and curator with a focus on LGBTQ history. He was a guest on The Bowery Boys back in 2019, discussing his award-winning book, When Brooklyn Was Queer. And he is back again tonight to chat about his latest book, The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison. Welcome back to the show, Hugh. Thanks for having me back. (laughs) Um, So Theas, thank you. We're just diving in here because, uh, you know, I actually would like it if you could just situate the women's house of detention officially. Okay, so
3: what were the problems
1: that this new house of detention was intended
3: to address? It's interesting. There were kind of two big problems that the city was trying to deal with, and they both relate, unfortunately, all the way back to the 1870s. As a historian, I am long-winded and cannot answer anything <laughs> without going a hundred years backwards. But
1: we have a hook, by the way. They were going to like <laughs> you know,
3: that. You're going to need it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It was intended to do this, right? In the 1870s, after the Civil War, that moment when the courthouse is being built and everything, America had a real problem on its hand, and that was this. We had a prison system that was built to handle the violent acts of white men. That's really all it was meant for, was to punish robbery, murder, arson. But after the Civil War, we had these new emerging populations that were coming into the public sphere. Women of all races and black people of all genders and we needed a system to control them Particularly women because until that point women were controlled by the family your birth family The family that enslaved you or the family that employed you So those things that women did that would eventually become the crimes that filled the house of D Were handled in the family part of the origin of our crisis of uh, domestic violence that we still have with us today Now as women emerge into the public sphere After the Civil War, first time ever, 1870s, the census asks about women's employment because women are in the public sphere. So there's this big penal conference to ask, what are prisons for? It's held in Ohio in the 1870s. And they hit on this idea that women's prisons need to do something very different from men's prisons. Women's prisons are meant to teach women to be, and this is in the words of the first women's detention center in America, wives... Mothers and the educators of children because that's all a woman could be and to be those things a woman needed to be properly Feminine so the role of a woman's prison the role of women's detention the role of the women's court All of this was a forced feminization process to take women who were not considered properly feminine and make them Feminine enough to be a good maid a good wife and a good mother so that's this initial idea we get in the 1870s we build all of these things called reformatories around the country these are big campuses usually in rural places where people being arrested women being arrested could be sent to learn how to do these things properly but there was a problem these reformatories were really big, right? They mimicked families, they had women in their own cottages, they could learn these domestic chores, and that was really expensive. And it turns out America doesn't like spending a lot of money on incarcerated people. And that's true historically, too. So, by the time we're moving into the House of D, these reformatories have been around for like 30 years, and America is through with them. As you said, the Great Depression is coming. Nobody wants to spend money on incarcerated women anymore. And reformatories were largely seen as failures, right? They only took in a very few number of women. And those women who they did take in, well, yeah, might have made them more feminine, but didn't solve poverty, didn't solve racism, didn't actually fix the root causes that were getting them arrested, right? So these reformatories weren't working. We needed a bigger prison. We needed a prison that was located in the city so that the women didn't have to move as much, kind of like what you talked about with Welfare Island. So the idea was a house of detention in the city that would handle this population and would be cheaper they were kind of still trying to straddle this line of it's a reformatory we're going to help them but really we're just going to put a lot of them in there right that's the idea the city has in 1929 when they start building the women's house of detention
2: well there is a lot in there i want to talk about Um, But, you know, as we're looking at photos, and again, we have them on the website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, when you look at photos at the time, and, you know, some are dramatic shots looking from an elevated platform over to, over across 6th Avenue at it. What are we looking at? Can you describe like, d- just the characteristics of this building and the, the features of this building?
3: Sure, it's an art deco building. It's often said to be the only art deco building uh, prison in the world. It's built by Sloan Robertson, who built the chain-in up in Midtown. Uh, it's mm. a beautiful building, a truly beautiful building. The joke in the village was that while it was being built, all these women would come in and say, how do I get an apartment here? And <laughs> the guards would always give them the same answer shoot your husband (laughs) it was 11 stories sometimes referred to as 12 stories because that top part up there was an outdoor uh, entertainment um, physical education sort of space that had a cage built on top of it so sometimes Mm -hmm. that's referred to as the 12th floor the first three floors were staff offices receiving areas library church all those kind of public parts of the building Uh, floors four through ten were actually where the incarcerated women were held these floors were h-shaped so the idea was that each leg of the H was its own corridor so you could put say women with syphilis in one corridor because that's one of the crimes that would get you into the house of detention having syphilis uh, so you could put women with syphilis in one corridor and you could put underage girls in another corridor and there'd be one guard sitting at the sort of middle of the H who could watch everything so again cheap right that's the idea behind this it's going to save a lot of money the 10th ten- the 11th floor was the hospital. In the original plans, there was actually supposed to be four stories worth of hospital, right? Because it was gonna be this rehabilitation place. And they understood that if they were arresting people for having syphilis and gonorrhea, they needed to be treating people for having syphilis and gonorrhea. Unfortunately, all of the other prisons in the city got to weigh in on the plans, and they said, that is not economical. We cannot have this kind of institution here. And so the hospital was cut down to just a single floor. And instead, this facility, which had been intended to be a jail, where people were held while they waited for their trial or were on trial, was now forced to hold both people on trial and people who were sentenced. So you had people who were in there for one night and you had people who were in there for 5 years. Wow. Very different needs in one building.
2: And in terms of the the cells themselves, were was it one person per per space or were they doubling up?
3: Oh. The idea was one person per cell, sure. Because and I have said, read your book.
2: It's just I'm <laughs> pretending like I don't know. We're going along
3: with it. You're feeding me good lines. Thank you. Uh, no, the idea was one person for a cell because even in the 1920s, they said, as they were building the building, this is an institution for women prisoners where homosexuality, with a dash between homo and sexuality, is always to be expected. And so they built this prison intending for each cell to have one person. Within three years, it was so overcrowded that that was largely a thing of the past. And by the time we get into the 1950s and 60s, they started tearing down whole portions of it, like the surgical rooms in the hospital, to make dormitory-style rooms where they could put 30 people in at a time.
2: Wow. And, you know, you really take the reader inside the House of D... Could you just speak for a moment about the process, like from the moment that a a, a person would arrive at the House of D as an inmate, what is their journey through this building?
3: Sure. Usually, you were taken inside by a police van into the little interior court r- area, so that no one would see you get out. Once you emerged into the court, you were or into the court r- area, you were brought into the prison itself, where you were given a uh, pelvic exam—really kind of brutal pelvic exam. Sometimes done by men, sometimes uh, so bad that they caused internal scarring. Usually during the course of that you were asked all kinds of questions about your sexual history, were you a virgin, Uh, did you do drugs, right, because they wanted to save a lot of time, so it makes sense to have the doctor ask these questions. <laughs> Whatever uh, don't get him started <laughs> they also gave you a, an enema and did a cavity search for contraband uh, this continued throughout the life of the prison this still happens to incarcerated women today in the 1950s they actually issued a report saying that in the first 25 years the prison had been open they had never not once not a single time found contraband from doing these searches but they were forced on every person who passed through uh, usually by that point you were sitting in a gown they had taken your clothes away if you were going to be there for a while you were given a little slip that said kind of what clothes you had left there and and where they were and hopefully they would be there when you got back Uh, if you were there and you were going to stay over the course of a season you were in real trouble because you might be stuck in your you know winter wear and be there in the summer when it was incredibly hot or the other way around Um, This usually took hours, right? Women were sitting, waiting. This was not a fast procedure. By the middle of the night, they would probably uh, put you into a cell where, again, there might already be someone, so they would wake that person up. Uh, A lot of things that we think of as part of prison life, like making a call to your lawyer, that simply didn't happen here. If you wanted to contact someone on the outside, you had to write everything down on a slip, and the guards made a call for you if and when they wanted to. So that kind of thing didn't happen for these people. They often had very little recourse to reach out to anyone except that, as you can see, there are windows on the prison, right? every cell had a window and those windows had mesh but you could talk out of them so more than official communication once you got to your cell was probably the time where you were most likely to actually be able to contact anyone because hopefully someone knew you were there and was waiting outside the prison to call up to you if you needed to use a bathroom you were in real trouble because toilet paper was issued in the mornings so if you got there in the evening you didn't get toilet paper, so you had to wait until the next morning to get some. Uh, In all of these ways, the initial moment of entering the prison was really about dehumanizing the person, removing their individuality, breaking them down, disconnecting them from the outside world, and in some years, particularly in the 60s, they would take women who were butch or who'd been arrested for a kind of gay crime, and they would force them to wear a D on their uniform for degenerate, so that everyone would know who they were.
1: Well, yeah, actually, let's, let's go down this path a little bit more. Can you talk about the prevalence of the queer population
3: at the House of D? Like, How large was it, and how, how would this change over the decades? Often the numbers weren't kept, right? This is the one thing that we know. Prisons keep very little data. What they do keep, they keep very poorly and they try to destroy it as fast as they can. But we have a system that was set up to incarcerate improperly feminine women, right? This was a system that was intended to focus on queer women, trans people, non-binary folks, and other women who were not feminine enough. So from the moment the prison opens, everyone says, there are vast numbers of queer people in that prison. The first estimates don't really get made until the 50s and 60s, at which point we start to hear something like maybe 75% of the people incarcerated in the House of D were queer, which sounds insane, right? But today, right now, in America, 40% of people in women's prisons identify as LGBTQ, and that's identify in an interview in prison in person, right? So imagine the people who can't talk about their own sexual orientation or who don't know because they haven't been through an experience like prison exactly how they're going to respond to it. And that number, that 40% number, that crisis of incarceration extends down to girls' detention centers. For girls between 12 and 18, 40% of people in them identify as LGBTQ today. 40% percent this is an all-time low for the queer prison population right but it is still a shocking number that we almost never talk about
1: Uh, what's interesting is you are able to tell these stories through the experiences of women who spent time at the house of d i mean this is really kind of humanizes like all of these themes that you're talking about how did you get these stories how did you find these
3: stories and how you know how are you able to even research this That was actually the full first year of writing this book. In my previous book, when Brooklyn was queer, I had encountered people who passed through the House of D. A black lesbian dancer named Mabel Hampton, who's very important in my previous book because she learns the word lesbian on Coney Island, right? And she has this huge, wide-ranging life. She passed through the House of D or the prison before it, and ended up in a reformatory. Uh, Another person who, in my previous book, I was never able to find the name he lived under. uh, But when researching this book, I found out he lived as Big Cliff Trondle. He was in and out of the prison. He was a trans man who was arrested for wearing pants and smoking in a bar in 1913. uh, Although later, he'd be often arrested for drugs and prostitution. So I knew that the House of D mattered in a certain way. I knew that I could find these stories. I knew that these stories were unique And interesting but when I sat down to look for them it was actually really hard I tried first going to the collections of LGBTQ periodicals thinking maybe there would be some references to the prison since it was open through the 60s into the 70s past the Stonewall rebellion but there wasn't really very much then I tried looking at the collections of famous LGBTQ New Yorkers who I thought maybe in their diaries or letters they would have talked about it and again, I didn't find very much. I looked at newspapers where I found kind of the official story of the prison, right? The the things that they release, and that didn't tell me anything about the people who were incarcerated, and particularly not anything about their sexuality. And so for a moment, I, I actually thought I wasn't going to be able to write this book because I could not write it from the perspective of the prison, because the prison's perspective is one, wrong, and two, poorly documented. They just did a terrible job keeping their own records. Then I I had to sit down and think and what i started to think about was this there are two ways you end up in history right in the public record either you have power you are famous and so people want to talk about you you write books and they get published and they get put into archives you have enough money to own your own house and pass it down to your children who then get your diaries in all these ways if you have power you end up in public records on your own terms but if you don't have power, the way that you enter history is as the raw material for someone else's record. So that could be through the prison. But if you're looking at queer history, that's also often through doctors and sexologists. These records are biased, right? They look at people through the lens of the profession that is looking at them, the problem that they are causing. But they're powerful. And so as I started to think about that, I thought, where else would these folks end up in someone else's records in a more full way, a way that looked at their whole life, not just their arrest. And that's when I hit on the records of social workers, right? Social workers at this time period were particularly interested in the connections between queerness and incarceration, because again, they understood being incarcerated was about being feminine or not feminine enough. So they understood that being queer could get you arrested or that being in prison could teach you to be queer in their eyes. So they were asking the right kinds of questions. And the New York Public Library, it turns out, has a collection of social worker files from the Women's Prison Association from the 1920s up through the 1970s, 140 boxes of them that no one had ever looked at. Uh Not once. I even had to ask to get permission because it turned out when they were donated in the 1980s to the library, the Women's Prison Association, a great organization still around today, they gave them with a stipulation. Any record less than 70 years old needed to get specific permission from the WPA to access it, right? They wanted to protect the lives of these people who might still be alive. Mm -hmm. But when they gave the donation to the library, the library does permissions at a box level not a folder level right so you want to get a box the library thinks well there's a hundred files in here a hundred folders at least one of them is probably less than 70 years old so they locked away the entire collection and no one had ever looked at it they told me the women's prison association told me one other person had ever asked for access and that was to actually do a history of the wpa itself Uh, the thing i think is so fascinating about this We are talking about Greenwich Village, like ground zero for queerness in America. And the records I'm using are in the New York Public Library, the most (laughs) approachable (laughs) archive, the one that everyone has access to. This is a hidden and forgotten story, but it's in plain sight, right? We just have to ask the right questions.
2: That's incredible. Um, And this house of detention opened in 1931, and there was some optimism when it opened. How quickly do you think it was obvious that there were some issues, that there were problems here?
3: Almost immediately. uh, That energy of saying, oh, look, it's, it's like an apartment, how beautiful it is, very quickly after the stock market crashed turns into, we are coddling them. Why should incarcerated people have anything nice? Why should they be here in a neighborhood that's for us us meaning of course people have the money to stay out of prison almost immediately the atmosphere towards the House of D changes. But within a very few years, it becomes a major flashpoint between LaGuardia, Mayor LaGuardia, and Jimmy Walker, who kind of represent two different ideas of city government, right? Jimmy Walker is patronage. He's the the machine. Uh, LaGuardia is this incoming reformer. And LaGuardia really hammers it as this, like, awful, terrible place. They're both from Greenwich Village, right? So they both see this as important to their neighborhood, important to the people who brought them into power. And so LaGuardia really says no this is a terrible place and he's absolutely right but like almost everyone else who condemns it in this period and in the 40s the 50s the 60s and the 70s he doesn't do anything about it he just complains about it and uses it as a cudgel against his opponents
2: Yeah, and and actually moving forward I mean there's a lot to cover here but you you take us through all of the decades that it was open of course um, including through World War two um, and then this post-war period that I found really fascinating Because I think especially the way that you describe the emerging homophobia in in the United States and where that came from, I mean, I was very surprised to read that in many ways, yeah, the 1950s, after after World War II, America was more homophobic than before. The, The 50s and 60s were more homophobic than
3: the 30s. Can you tell us about that? Sure, but I'm going to have to be pedantic again. We're headed back to the 19th century. (laughs) I apologize. Please. (laughs) So, in the 19th century, America has a very different idea of what it means to be queer. Uh, Broadly speaking, there's this idea of what's called the invert. The invert is named that way because of their inverted gender. There is no such thing as sexuality as we think of it today, homo or hetero. Uh, Heterosexuality rests on the idea that there's a sexual orientation that men and women can share equally that can be the same for men and women. In the 19th century, they didn't believe that at all. They didn't think there was anything men and women shared, right? So instead, the idea of the invert combined and collapsed what it meant to be gay what it meant to be trans, and what it meant to be intersex. It was thought to be in your body in a very real way. And the only people that were recognized as queer were those who violated gender norms. And that violation of the gender norm was expected to be in your body. Now, this causes all kinds of things. But the important part for our story here is that homophobia as we think of it today really didn't exist then, you knew who an invert was, right? They were obvious. You didn't have to worry about whether you were or were not an invert, whether you were talking to an invert, whether your mother was an invert, whether you were being hit on by an invert. It was obvious. They were different. Now. As we move into the 20th century, as Freud comes in and talks to us about personality and moves sexuality out of the body and into the brain, along with all of our personality, and we begin to get this idea, thanks to cities, about gender-normative homosexuals who, before this, really didn't understand themselves as different from other people people because men were expected to spend all their time with men women were expected to spend all their time with women you were expected to write love notes to each other abraham lincoln slept in the same bed as his best friend for four years they did not see themselves as different until cities gave gender normative homosexuals the chance to see each other right so in that moment at the start of the 20th century we begin to break down this idea of the invert into what our modern categories are right our lgbs and t's lesbian gay bisexual transgender But we have to learn that. Someone has to teach everybody this. And largely, the medical information was kept under wraps. It was scandalous, it was obscene. You couldn't get access to it. So where does America learn this? Well, America learns it very slowly. And the first place we start to learn it, particularly for women, Is the court system right these courts understand that if you're not properly feminine you're gonna get arrested and if you're arrested you're probably not properly feminine over and over again in the earliest records i could find women learned what it meant to be a homosexual because the courts told them that they were homosexuals they looked at their behaviors and they informed them what those things meant one of my favorite of my early narrators a woman named charlotte says to her social worker it's not my fault women look up to me like they did a dazzling football hero Right? She understands what's going on, but she doesn't see herself as different. And she doesn't understand what sexuality is or lesbianism. They have to teach her that. So this happens for women in the 30s. And then World War II supercharges this, right? Uh, Alan Barabay's Coming Out Under Fire is kind of the or text about this. World War II is the moment where most of America learns what it means to be gay. Because everyone brought into military service is warned about it in their induction letters. They are tested for it when they are coming into the army or the navy. Anyone who's working on the civilian side is also warned about it. We have all of this kind of gender change that's happening as more women are in the workforce in certain ways. There's a lot of anxiety around gender. All of this is used as a moment to teach America what it means to be gay. But that teaching is done through the eyes of the court and the eyes of the military who see gayness as inherently problematic, as bad, as stunted, as potentially a reason for being treasonous. So, as America is being taught what gay is, we're also being taught that it's awful. And we're also being taught, and this is critical, that it's invisible. It's not like being an invert. An invert is obvious. But if you know a homosexual well then you know they're just like you right you could be a homosexual how do you prove you're not a homosexual right how how i
2: I don't try but yeah
3: (laughs) the answer for most of america (laughs) is what we call homophobia homophobia It's a performative display of heterosexuality meant to say, I am not that thing. But first you have to know that thing exists. So the reason the 1950s, getting back finally to your question, Mm -hmm. the reason the 1950s are such a nadir for queer rights in America is that America has now been taught what it means to be gay, That being gay is invisible, so anyone could be gay, and that being gay is directly connected to all kinds of bad things, like being mentally unstable and being a war trader or being arrested. And so in this decade that is all about leaving behind the horrors of war, women returning to the kitchen, the suburbs, conformity, in that moment... America has been taught to hate gay people, and as the red scare comes in, the lavender scare comes with it. So as we freak out about invisible communists who are also evil in all the same ways homosexuals are, we also freak out about gays being evil. That is why the 1950s are remembered as the most homophobic decade in American history.
1: Let's stick a little with this theme because there is an interesting relationship, you know, back here at the House of D in the village, this interesting relationship between the social activities of the village and then these mounting pressures inside the House of Detention. You know, it's like there's a groundswell of political unrest that eventually reaches inside the prison itself, right? And you even write about the role that it plays in the Stonewall Uprising of 1969, a story that, I mean, I don't think people know this little kernel of the stone, of the Stonewall story, the House of D aspect.
3: Uh, I mean, I certainly didn't know it either. The fascinating thing, if you happened to recently look at a map from the 1800s, I don't know, just if you had, you might have noticed that Christopher Street, dead ends into where the prison was. The distance between the Stonewall Inn and the Women's House of Detention, about 500 feet. They could see, hear, and smell everything that was happening on the ground. In fact, uh, one of the women that I I interviewed and I I talked about a lot in the book is uh, named Arcus Flynn. On the night of the first night of Stonewall Riots, she was driving home from her job as a nurse. She was driving through Greenwich Village and she noticed these weird... Little lights in the sky, just flying. Then she pulled over her car because she didn't understand what was happening. And she got out and she heard yelling, screaming. So she wandered her way towards the house of D, towards the Stonewall Inn, and she realized what she heard were the women in the prison chanting. Gay rights, gay rights, gay rights. And the fires that she saw were them setting fire to their belongings and throwing them out the windows to support the rioters below because they understood what was happening. And the same queer people who were on the streets, the homeless queer kids who were so much of the Stonewall uprising, They were the same people that were in the prison. It was one connected struggle, right? This part of the story has been lost for a long time, but there are hints of it that are still out there. One of the ones that I find most fascinating. So we don't know the names of most of the queer women and trans folks who were incarcerated in the House of D during the Stonewall riots, but we do know two of them. And those two women were leaders in the Black Panther Party named Afeni Shakur and Joan Byrd. They had both been arrested in April of that year as part of this massive attempt to destroy the Black Panther Party in New York City. It was called the Panther 21. Leaders of the party all arrested on the same night. Afini Shakur, talks about after she gets out of jail how being in the prison and seeing gay people protesting outside made her think about the connections between gay liberation and black liberation. And when she gets out of the prison she actually spends the next few years connecting the two. She brings all of these gay liberation front leaders to a meeting with Huey P. Newton at Jane Fonda's apartment (laughs) to talk about the future of the movement as one thing. She goes to all of these meetings, these gay men's workshops to talk to them about liberation and how these things are connected when the black panthers hold their constitutional convention in dc she helps them formulate their demands for the new constitution but what she doesn't mention is that while she was also in the women's house of detention she met her girlfriend carol carol crooks who i actually got to interview several times before she passed unfortunately during the covid pandemic she said to me afini was like a light, everyone responded to her. She was so wonderful, so sweet, so smart, so beautiful, so strong. There was almost no chance for them to talk in the prison, but she did manage to give her her mother's phone number and the names of a couple of bars she hung out at. And when they got out, they found each other and Afini pushed her to get involved with gay liberation. Afini put Crooks' name down on the birth certificate for her son, Leslie Parrish Crooks, who you might know as Tupac Shakur. His birth name was for his lesbian mother, right? We forget all of this story, but it's all still out there. And Joan Bird and Afeni Shakur tried as hard as they could to connect these two movements in the immediate aftermath of Stonewall because they saw that they were connected. And that connection went both ways. The folks who were on the ground at Stonewall that night, Martha Shelley, Jim Farrah, these young leaders in the aftermath of the riots, older leaders, the homophile movement tried to call together a community meeting to say, what should we do with this energy? Where should we focus it? And these younger folks said, we want to protest the prison. We want to protest the women's house of detention in support of the Black Panthers. And the older folks said, absolutely not. We are not doing that. They had been working on a plan which had had some success with the mayor to get the cops to stop harassing gay bars. Uh, one of the reasons Stonewall Inn was raided, which I rarely gets talked about, is it was actually a police officer who was trying to crack down on the mob. He refused to take their payments to not raid the gay bars, right? That's the context. So these older homophiles thought we cannot piss off the cops by supporting the Black Panthers. So the younger folks immediately stormed out of the meeting and announced that they were forming a new organization, which they called the Gay Liberation Front. One of the biggest and most important organizations in queer thought in the 1960s and 70s came directly out of a desire to support queer Black Panthers in the Women's House of Detention. Their first protest, you'll hear all the time that it was in the uh, Protest of the Village Voice in September, it wasn't. Within a week of being formed, they were back at the House of De-protesting, and they were back there again in Thanksgiving. They were part of a week-long Encampment of 24 7 protests between Christmas and New Year's Eve They were back there for International Women's Day They were there over and over and over again along with the Black Panthers the young lords the youth against war and fascism The radical lesbians the red stockings the women's house of detention was a center for all of these liberation movements because they understood they were all oppressed by the same system and that moment of Stonewall is the root of so much more than we remember it as today and I often think Why is it that we only get that other half of the story right for me? I think there is a direct connection between modern queer politics and the politics of abolition that has been Systematically cut away from our history because it is too frightening because it is too scary to those in power but there is so much more to the story of Stonewall than the thin sliver we have received (laughs)
2: Thank you.
1: And now, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to bring together the two parts of our story. Four, I would like to remind you that the building that we are referring to today, the House of Detention, throughout its entire existence, was sitting next to that beautiful ornate Jefferson Market Courthouse building. The one with the clock tower with the night court and with Alva Belmont and Mae West and all of that. OK, so next door to each other. Right. Um, and for a time, they, of course, they they had a mutual relationship. But in 1945, court was permanently adjourned at the courthouse and the building became home to various agencies, including the police academy. Then, by 1959, the courthouse was completely abandoned and slated for demolition. And so then the courthouse just sat
2: empty through the 1960s, through everything that Hugh just magnificently explained for us? It was empty? Well, no,
1: actually. Um, In the early 1960s, thanks to the efforts of Neighborhood community activists like Margot Gale and many others the courthouse was actually saved from demolition uh, Which was an early preservation success story and before the landmarks law actually and in 1967 it opened as a branch of the New York Public Library having been transformed by the architect Giorgio Cavallari and of course as you know it remains a library today
2: Yes, in fact, it just reopened this summer in July of 2022 following a major renovation. They now have public bathrooms um, and so much more, so much more. Uh, but it opened as a library in 1967, and that means that people were literally checking out books next door while, while, while the house of detention was sitting just literally next door.
1: Yeah, uh, but, not, you not, know what I mean. but it wasn't there for long, though. So Hugh,
2: the end of this story, the House of D, um, there had been so many problems that you have articulated here. What finally pushed it over the edge? What finally got the city to shut this place down?
3: A bunch of things, but the real straw was another one of those pelvic exams, this time on an 18-year-old white woman who was going to Bennington College who had been protesting the Vietnam War outside the UN in 1965. Uh, You may be familiar with her later work. Her name was Andrea Dworkin, the famous feminist of the 1970s. She wasn't yet famous as anything. She was arrested, brought there, held there for three days without being able to contact her lawyers. Uh, The exam that she was given was brutal in scarring done by two men uh, one of whom quit almost immediately once the scandal went public and would never talk about it again neither of them was ever punished but she spent three days in jail she finally got out she went to her parents they did not want her to talk about what had happened she was embarrassed Uh, she didn't know what to do another woman had been at the protest with her and she had taken some spare clothing that Andrea had when it looked like the cops weren't gonna come and arrest them because you would take spare clothing to jail so you'd have something when you got out so she thought well I'll go get this clothing And that woman was Grace Paley, the author and activist who lived in the village. And she took Andrea Dworkin and said, you need a doctor. And she took her to her doctor. And then she said, what do you want to do? And Andrea Dworkin said, I want this story to be told everywhere. And so they immediately went to the press. And because of Grace Paley's connections and because Andrea Dworkin was white and upwardly mobile and college educated and young and all of the kind of right things for the city to care about her. They didn't ignore her complaints as they had every other woman who had complained about these exams and instead it became a flashpoint for the city again for the mayoral race actually it became a huge battle in the mayoral race and within five weeks there were something like six different government investigations launched in the House of D they had been wanting to move the House of D for a long time for reasons relating to the gentrification of Greenwich Village and the local landowners not wanting it there anymore but this was the final nail in the mm-hmm. coffin once Andrew Dworkin came forward there was nothing to be done except eventually move it to Rikers Island
2: yeah so all the inmates were moved to Rikers Island and and there have been further facilities built out there as well, including plans for a new one.
3: Yeah, so there was a facility built, uh, it it, much like the House of D, before it was built, huge praise of how great it was going to be, there'll be a nursery, there'll be a hospital, by the time it was opened, it was already overcrowded, they got rid of the nursery, they cut down the hospital, this happens every single time with jails. The only reform that is true in the eyes of the carceral system is growth of prisons, right? Everything else is a lie that will be axed at some point to make room for more prisoners. So that's the first prison, that gets Gets torn down, new one gets built. That's Rosie's, which is still active today, We're supposed to be active for another four years. There's this new plan to move us back to borough based jails you might have heard about Gloria Steinem's new push for a quote-unquote feminist jail which is literally impossible terrible (laughs) idea this it's it's like painting a gun pink and then saying it makes war better Uh, it's it's a miserable idea but these institutions are still with us and they are still overcrowded they are still using solitary confinement which is often thought of as a form of torture around the world they are still doing these kind of pelvic exams and pap smears contraband exams Forced feminization, the enemas nothing, nothing has changed
2: so ending on an optimistic note i 'm um, a real downer no, but no you you, you spent five years on this project researching these stories, and i'm i 'm curious about what pulling way back, you really learned about you know the American uh, criminal justice system but but more specifically. Did it leave you with any hope about the way that it might be reformed?
3: Yes, I think that reform is not a terrible idea, right? But reform is a step towards something and you need to have a goal. And right now, the system that we have cannot be compatible with justice. It isn't about justice. We have a system that is built as a catch-all, a drain, a safety valve for every broken system in America from our welfare system to our housing system to our mental health care system to our drug addiction treatment programs jails exist to take up the people we refuse to care for right that's all that they do and that's all that they ever do so reforms that don't address those systems of care actually don't do anything we might think we're trying to improve justice but the system isn't about justice justice is ancillary to what it is doing and that sounds really depressing I swear I'm getting to the like good part in a second care For me though, this idea of care is where it comes down and where it reconnects to queer politics. It's not just that queer people are in prison by accident, right, it is because queer people in a world that sees care as primarily coming from the family, from the like, you know, nuclear family, queer people will always, always be without care in certain instances, right? There will always be people who have been kicked out. And so long as that is the case, queer politics needs to emphasize care and care is the one thing that will actually keep people out of prison in a meaningful way there is a direct connection between queer politics and abolition and it runs along that line Right? what do elders without descendants need? care what do children kicked out of their families need? care what do people with AIDS need? care what is Medically safe socially safe and supported and free gender transition services care What is the ability to get married and form your chosen family care in every aspect? Queer politics is about care and abolition as a movement asks us who is harmed who is cared for? And where does the state put its thumb on the scale if we move away from a system that is about punishing crime which is what the system does. Whether it tells you it's about justice or rehabilitation, it is about punishment. And crime is defined often as simply being poor or inconvenient or mentally ill or homeless. If we can move away from that to a system of supporting care, it will support All queer people. Queer politics and abolition politics go hand in hand because the question is, why are we not cared for by the state? And marriage law is a clumsy and limited attempt to do that, right? That is the state saying, we will give you some benefits to provide some kind of care for each other. But again, it's caught up in this idea of heterosexual nuclear families. And if we can pull away from that, if we can establish systems of care that you can move into with your friends with your brothers and sisters, with your blockmates or the people you went to school with, then we can establish ways to keep people out of prison and to keep queer people off the streets, out of asylums, and out of prisons. So, that's where hope lies for me, right? That I can see the ways in which the movement I have spent so much of my life in connects directly to the goals of abolition, and that hopefully, maybe, together by listening, I mean, so much of this I had to learn by listening to abolitionists, people like Angela Davis, who was incarcerated in the Women's House of Detention, and who says all of this, right? If these movements can knit together and can work together, I see so much possibility for the future. And there are so many people already doing this work. Andrea Ritchie, Joey Mogul, Kay Whitlock, Black and Pink. There are incredible organizations out there. And if you want to know more or get involved, I suggest reaching out to them, reading their books. This is a movement that needs everyone, because it is about everyone. So that's where I see hope.
1: And your your book is filled with so many fascinating stories and so many fascinating people that you know. I think it'll just open people's eyes uh, to just like th- how people lived in, in ways that you know they may not have thought of before. So, congratulations on another amazing book! Again, the title is "The Women's House of Detention: A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison," published by Bulltype Books. Thank you for joining us, Hugh. Thank you for having me. And thanks to all of you.
2: (laughs) Yes, thank you, Hugh. And a special thanks to everybody here in the audience tonight and to those of you joining us on the live stream, the wonderful team at Caveat, and you listening to the podcast. Uh, Listeners, you were not able to see the slideshow that we had running behind us during today's show, but you can see all of these images and more if you head over to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com.
1: And a big thanks to those who j- have joined us at patreon.com slash Boys. It's because of you that we are able to dedicate all of our time to producing the Bowery Boys podcast. And also, by the way, Hugh Ryan also has a Patreon page, patreon.com slash Hugh Ryan
2: yes his patrons actually supported you while you were writing the book right?
3: yeah uh, I would not be able to do the research that I do which is largely unpaid I have the same part-time job I had for the last 16 years to support <laughs> this so the patreon really actually does make a huge difference in my life so thank you to
2: all the patrons out there any anybody here tonight <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Thank, you. Thank, thank you sir
1: thank you thank you so thanks for joining us on this whirlwind tour of the Jefferson market and the Women's House of Detention. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.
0: <laughs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast.